Up first on the show, though, a one-on-one with Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. Her understandably busy schedule saw a need to connect mere minutes ago. Uh, We've turned this around as fast as humanly possible. So here's the conversation I just had uh, featuring many of your questions. Have a listen. First of all, thank you so much, Dr. Henry, for joining us. Good morning. I asked our CKNW listeners for their number one question for you, and the overwhelming response was actually not a question. And they want to thank you for your leadership. Oh, really? That's very kind. Thank you. And I had to definitely put that forward because it was an overwhelming majority who wanted that to be the very first thing we covered. The second, however, is a little bit more contentious, and I know you've been referencing this uh, for the last number of days, certainly specifically. Most are really concerned about air travel and also the U.S. border. They're feeling nervous about our success here in B.C. being at risk. You know, I think we're all a little bit nervous. It's been a very challenging few months, and we've done a great job. And we, 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 you know, all of us in BC have put our hearts into this. So the thought that somebody may not understand that and may put that at risk is is anxiety provoking for all of us. But I do think, you know, we need to put it in perspective. There are restrictions on the border, and we need to uh, ensure that people are who are here are doing the things that we're doing. But I also want to say that, you know, now that we're starting to travel more within BC, even people in BC and the rest of Canada who are coming here, we need to to take this to heart as well. Um, We're starting to see some increased transmission in in the interior, for example, some host parties where people are getting together, and, and that's fine. But you need to keep it small, and you need to make sure that you know how to contact people so that we don't get these transmission chains um, that we can't stop. And when you say we can gather, should we always gather outside while we have the opportunity to do so? You know what? We we do know that this virus doesn't transmit nearly as easily outside as inside. So yeah, especially with the weather that we're having, now's the time to, to have those gatherings outside. But again, it is important to keep it small because even mm. outside, we know that if you're having a prolonged conversation in close with somebody, that's how this virus can be transmitted. And we've seen that happen, unfortunately, in the last uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, where people who have really mild illness or may not realize that they have it are having the even outside parties or a mixture of inside and outside and meeting people and you know it's our nature we want to do that especially young people it's an important thing to do but we need to make sure we know who we're who we're partying with so that if something comes up we're able to warn people quickly in watching your briefings dr bonnie henry uh, we see you and hear you speaking about young people and how they really need to know their part of this solution and how not knowing who you might be partying with can be a real risk when it comes to that all-important contact tracing. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the reasons why we're talking about making sure we keep our numbers small is so that we can find that balance where we're minimizing that transmission. You know, it, it goes back to what we know about this virus from the very beginning. Once there's no treatment, there's no vaccine. So once you've been exposed, 
um, there, there's nothing we can do that will prevent you from getting sick if you've been exposed to enough virus. But what we can do is stop you from transmitting it to others. And none of us wants to transmit it because we're, we're going to pass it on to the people we're closest to. So it's really important um, when you're having these gatherings, especially now, and we need to we need to have that social connection after being cooped up for this while, to, to take that responsibility for yourself. Make sure that if you're not feeling well at all, that you stay away from that one. There'll be another opportunity and that you know the people that you're with or at least have some ability to, to connect with them, to contact them if something comes up. And that's what we've seen happen in Kelowna very recently. Right. You know, people were just having a good time and and that's fine, but we need to be able to connect with those people um, when when a case comes up. And that's how we all protect our, each other and our community. Now, what kind of advice can you give to our listener and to me uh, when we come in contact with those who are maybe frustrated with limitations of health directives and, and maybe think, we're out of the woods or these directives are overblown. Some people think it's a hoax. What, how do we address that with kindness and calmness? Well, that's exactly it. You know what? Probably the best thing is not to engage in those conversations. It's like some of the other ones that we have in our lives where it's best to say, you know what, we may need to agree to disagree. But for me, it's important that you keep your distance or that you cover your mouth or that when we go into a, a place, uh, you know, if we're taking transit, I'm going to wear a mask because it's an important as a show of respect for my community and the things that I'm doing. I think we can model that behavior, and most people will be uh, will come along with that. And it, it is a challenging time, and I think we just need to look at what's happening all around us to understand that this is very real. Um, and particularly, we look at our, our friends and neighbors and colleagues to the south. Um, and the impact it's having, not just on on people's health and now hospitals and, and people are dying from it, but it also sets back our economy and our ability to have our social connections as well. So it's very important for us to, to keep keep doing what we're doing because it is working and we're caring for each other by doing that. And I feel like we should reiterate what we are doing that is working, the wash hands, the avoid crowds, the mask when you can't have physical distancing, uh, these simple um, directives that British Columbians seem to be doing en masse that has made us successful. Can you tie in what we've been doing right to the serology study that we got the results of uh, in the last couple of days? Yeah, so this is a study that uh, we've had planned since the very beginning. We were kind of hoping, you know, maybe we could stop this virus and we wouldn't have to do it, but um, but we had planned ahead for it. So uh, what it tells us is that less than 1% of people in BC have been infected with this virus. And that's good news. It means that the things that we did and are doing make a difference. And that saves lives. We know that um, a percentage of people are going to end up in hospital and people are going to die from this. And being able to, to suppress that transmission means that we're protecting the people that we are closest to and care about most. So that's uh, amazingly good news for us. It also means that m most of us are still susceptible to this virus. So we need to, to find that balance and keep doing what we're doing to keep each other safe. And when it comes to the antibody test, when will there be a window or when will we be able to access those tests as individuals? 
Yeah, so so we are still learning about what antibodies mean. Does it mean that we're going to be protected from reinfection? Does it mean that protection will last for a long time? Those are some of the questions that this study uh, was not designed to answer. It was really designed to help us understand what happened in the last few months um, and that snapshot of, of how many people were infected. So we are still learning from other studies um, how much antibody you need to have to be protected, whether it keeps you safe for a long period of time or not. So what we also know is because so few of us have been infected, it's probably not helpful to have widespread antibody testing at this point. What we're going to do is look at targeting specific groups to see who's been impacted most. So we'll be looking at um, essential workers, people who have been working during this period of time. We'll be looking at healthcare workers. Um, and that's where we can get the most information about uh, what the antibody tests tell us. Uh, we're going to hear something from Premier John Horgan and Education Minister uh, Rob Fleming today about getting back to school. Uh, everybody agrees that you will be at the heart of this and and making sure that schools are as safe as possible, and it will be reflected in how kids attend class this fall. Can you give us an idea of what the sort of benchmarks are for kids getting back to school um, in class uh, come the fall? Yeah, so we've been working, uh, of course, from the very beginning to make sure that we can support the educational and social development needs of all kids. And that is incredibly important to me. You know, from the work that I've done for many years on um, preparing for pandemics, we know that kids being out of school differentially affects some of them more than others. So our goal for for the fall is um, all kids back in school full-time. Having said that, we've learned a lot from how we can do that safely from the month that we were open in June. And so um, Minister Fleming has a, a, a team together that includes uh, the unions, includes parent representatives, uh, school districts, so that we can put all that together and tailor the approach to each school district and the needs. But the, the overall goal is to, to, we're planning to have all kids back full time, but we're also doing contingency plans, um, depending on what happens in, in different communities and across the province with, uh, with the virus. So it's how do we, how do we get those important learning situ- um, uh, established again, um, from all kids as best we can while dealing with COVID? I know you have to run, but I want one more question, if you don't mind. Your history with uh, epidemics, you just referenced right there, polio in Pakistan, Ebola in Africa, SARS in Toronto. I lived there at the time and remember you. So how does one aspire to follow in your scientific footsteps? (laughs) I don't know. I think we're all a product of our own experiences, but I think... You know, it's more um, finding something that you're passionate about and interested in and being able to to, uh, um, just follow that passion. Follow your passion. Follow your your science. How do you stay calm (laughs) in all of these scenarios and, and run headlong into these with seemingly unwavering, I don't know, strength of character? You know what? Um, I don't know. This is something that uh, that has been said to me for a long time. That you know, I can stay calm <laughs> in a crisis. It's probably my my superpower. Um, it is. 
it's it comes from um, just realizing that that is the way that we best support each other, that if we come from a position of, okay, what do we know? What do we not know? We give people the information about what we need them to do. We tell them why, and we give people, we are transparent with the numbers and what why we are doing what we're doing and how we're going to change if things change. And then most people will do what we need them to do. And, and that's something that I've learned in, in being involved with these uh, uh, crises of many different types of crises over the years. And, and that's what we need to continue to do. We can do this together. And the only way that we're going to minimize the impact of both the, the, you know, the medical issues, but the, the social trauma that we're all going through with, with something like this that is spread all around the world, is to do it together and recognize that we're in it for each other. We will get through this together. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and we are standing by to connect with Dr. Danuta Skaronsky, who is one of the lead scientists on that serology report, uh, the study that was done with UBC in conjunction with the Provincial Health Office uh, about how we have managed COVID-19 in British Columbia. And it's a very fascinating study. So we're going to get details. We're just waiting to connect with Dr. Skaronsky right now. I will reiterate my email inbox is filling up. I'm getting loads of texts and Twitter notifications about the uh, one-on-one interview that you might have heard off the top of the program, or maybe you missed some of it. We had a one-on-one with Dr. Bonnie Henry, and we will replay that a little bit later on in the program for sure. Uh, But you can catch the link at Jody Vance, uh, at CKNW on Twitter, um, and and putting it out there so that you can can have a listen to some of the great intel that Dr. Bonnie Henry shared with us. We did cover a, a large number, a wide ranging, uh, uh, sampling of your questions, if you will. And certainly there was the one that has been the loudest of late, the concerns about the U.S.-Canada border crossing, the concerns about air travel. Um, you were probably listening to Mornings with Simi today, I mean, and Claire Newell being on with Simi talking about uh, the nervousness with which people are getting back to travel and the um, the major airlines in Canada certainly wanting to expand that even further and how that has many of us here in Vancouver and in, in BC uh, as a larger form certainly feeling nervous about the travel and Dr. Henry uh, was very clear for us to remember that uh, this is a time where we're all feeling nervous and that to let ourselves get exponentially more um, distressed over air travel and those who might come across the border saying they're going to Alaska. Now is not the time to add stress to our day to day because the fact of the matter is we're doing extraordinarily well in our response to COVID-19 here in British Columbia. And proof of that was in the serology study that uh, we are now going to unpack a little bit, certainly with someone who knows all about the study, as we welcome one of the lead authors, the award-winning Dr. Danuta Skoronsky. Thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Let's begin with the big takeaways from this serology test. Uh, first of all, how many samples were involved in this, and, and, and where did those samples come from? Uh, all told, we had just over 1,700 uh, specimens that were included in our sero survey. We did uh, two snapshots uh, serum collections uh, in early March, uh, just as the first wave in BC was beginning to uh, surge. 
And then we strategically timed it at the end of the first wave um, around mid-May, just as we were beginning to relax our social distancing measures somewhat. Um, and our goal was to assess what was the uh, community infection rate, uh, how successful had our containment population level containment efforts been, and to what extent might we have uh, underestimated the uh, cases through our routine surveillance um, data. Okay, doctor, can you walk us through what we did learn on each of those uh, subject matters, so each of those topics? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what we showed, first of all, is uh, very good news and um, uh, uh, big congratulations to uh, British Columbians uh, together because it's really required a communal effort to achieve. We did keep the infection rates in British Columbia uh, well below 1%, uh, which is really quite extraordinary when you compare to other regions. Um, so that's really a, a, a great news story. Of course, the flip side to that is um, uh, given infection rates are so low, we do know that uh, the vast majority of the population remains susceptible to this novel virus. So we still have a long way to go before we would have sufficient community immunity uh, to naturally keep this virus at bay, which means we still have uh, to be on guard and apply those uh, social distancing measures to continue to minimize its spread. Dr. Skaronsky, can you uh, sort of put into perspective when you say less than 1% of our population having been infected with COVID-19, when we look elsewhere, places like in Washington state or, or perhaps New York state where there were they were the epicenter uh, for a, a good chunk of this spring, what would the percentages compar comparatively be elsewhere? Mm -hmm. We have to, when you're comparing estimates from these sorts of surveys, uh, the devil is in the details. You really have to be... Uh cognizant of the differences in the methods that were used for the sampling, mm. um, what populations they were looking at, what uh, and, uh, assays they were using to uh, detect antibodies. And you'll see from our paper, we didn't just use one antibody assay, uh, we used four uh, because these assays have different characteristics, different ability to detect antibodies. Um, some miss antibodies or infections in people, so we were using multiple assays to make sure that we picked up what another assay might have missed. And not all uh, surveys have applied multiple um, uh, tests the way that we did. But Taking all of that into account, nonetheless, uh, British Columbia uh, compares well when we look at other surveys that have used similar sampling methods using uh, anonymous residual specimens from other diagnostic testing. So as an example, the United States has just done a, a six-city um, zero survey using comparable methods in Washington state around the Puget Sound region near Seattle. Uh, their estimate was just over 1% at the community level. That compares to New York City where it approached 7%. So regardless with our estimate well below 1%, uh, British Columbians do have good reason to be 
uh, proud together in their achievements. Proud of the fact that the the um, the steps that we took to isolate, to keep our bubbles small, to wash hands, to stay stay home if sick, and and uh, physical distance when out in public, and now wear a mask where where physical distancing is uh, not an option. Those are the things that are working here. That that's the check mark that we're getting from this study as far as uh, we in the community uh, what we can do. That's right. This is really getting at our success in preventing community level spread. That's not to say that there weren't certain settings where there may have been higher infection rates, such as in uh, some long-term care facility settings, uh, right? Mm. This is really measuring what was our ability, notwithstanding there may have been some uh, flare-ups in some areas, what was our ability to put out the fire overall and stop it from uh, spreading uh, further and and what this says is that by following those uh, distancing measures, uh, British Columbians together, as I say, did their part to uh, stamp this out. The virus hasn't gone anywhere. It's still with us and it's, it's not going to go away. This is now a humanized virus. It's become part of our Um, list of respiratory viruses that can cause infections. But what we want to do is continue to suppress its spread to buy ourselves time to minimize the impact on the healthcare system so that it is there when people need it. And until we can get a safe and effective vaccine that we can deliver to bring the community immunity up um, uh, to be able to stop the spread through immunity that we must now stop through the distancing measures that you described. All right, Jody Vanson for Mike Smith on this Friday. Hope it finds you well. I love connecting with our next guest because we get to banter and talk through some hot topics. Today, we're going to get a little political. I'm talking to my friend Mo Amir, host of Van Color Podcast, which everybody should be subscribing to. It's fantastic guests, consistently personal conversations, really dig it. And we're going to have a personal conversation right here, Mo, as we talk about some uncomfortable topics for some. Hey, Jody, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's dive in. Uh, where do we begin? Uh, well, you, you set it up for us here, why we're talking about uh, what today's subject matter is. <laughs> well, uh, there's a big problem that the BC Liberals are currently facing, and it's, well, it's with MLA Lori Thronis. And this is the type of issue that can really carry on into the next year, as I think the, the MLA, uh, Lori Thronis, is now poised to usurp Rich Coleman's position as Andrew Wilkinson's biggest headache. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, there are members in the BC NDP caucus that have taken this issue very personally, including Spencer Chandra Herbert and Selena Robinson. And for those that are not aware, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Andrew Wilkinson uh, inadvertently painted himself into a corner. He, he came out and said there was no room for homophobia or transphobia or other types of bigotry within the BC Liberal Party and that the BC Liberals would no longer advertise or contribute to magazines such as The Light, which is a Christian magazine that advocated for things like conversion therapy, which is commonly accepted as grossly homophobic. 
Now, when Andrew Wilson, as it should be, frankly, yeah, absolutely. Let's just let's just throw that down. I can't believe we're still talking about that in Canada. Never mind uh, locally here with regard to politicians. Absolutely, and Andrew Wilkinson was very clear. And when he said that, he was drawing a line in the sand. Now, to BC Attorney General David Eby's own admission, and Mr. Eby said this on my podcast. Andrew Wilkinson has a very tough job. He has a tough job keeping together this big tent party that sees themselves as the free enterprise coalition. And this coalition, unfortunately, includes some people who have very socially conservative, and I would go further and I would actually say backwards views on LGBTQ issues, including conversion therapy. Mm. But Andrew Wilkinson, in my mind, he did the right thing. He drew the line in the sand People, people, I think, were willing to show the BC Liberals a little grace for their oversight in being affiliated with that magazine. But after Andrew Wilkinson said that, MLA Thronis didn't fall in line. Instead, he chose to tell the media that he wasn't going to stop advertising in that magazine. And then he made some sort of defense for conversion therapy. Setting aside the moral argument, which I think you and I, as you just said, you know, we both agree, I think most people agree on, Lori Thronis is directly disobeying Andrew Wilkinson. I'm sure that there have been discussions within the caucus and the party to get Thronis to walk back his statements. But ultimately, as a party leader, it's not a great look to allow this type of blatant dissension on a very Mm. sensitive issue. So Mr. Wilkinson has to take control of his party. He needs to kick Thronis out of his caucus. And he needs to tell everyone within caucus that, you know what, like it or not, he is the leader. He made the call, and it's ride or die with him until the next election because there's no other logically consistent or morally consistent option at this point. And like you said, Andrew Wilkinson drew the line in the sand. He said, we are not a party who will, uh, who will tolerate any anti-LGBTQ2+, or uh, like the conversion therapy piece. Again, it just it makes me... It makes me pause every time I say that out loud. The idea that you can use therapy to, to remove the gay from a human mm-hmm. seems to me like something that should have gone away, uh, gone the way of the dodo bird. Like this is, should be long extinct. And yet here we are talking about it. Here we're talking about leaders openly talking about this with other fellow MLAs. Uh, and you, you mentioned Selena Robinson. We had her on the program uh, right after that, uh, the advertisement in the light uh, came to light. Mm-hmm. And she was absolutely, she was beside herself, you know, talking about her, her gay son who has just recently been engaged and somebody that she sits short shoulder to shoulder with, um, trying to, to lead British Columbia politically, uh, thinks that her, there's something wrong with her child. It's just, it's, it's shocking to me that, that, that this has gotten to this point, I guess is what I'm trying to say to you, Mo. It's just so shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And I think that's why it, it's such a big problem right now. I think usually sometimes when people say the wrong things or do the wrong things, there's a t- temptation to just, you know, weather the storm and let it go. And I think that temptation is going to be here as well. But I don't think that this is going to go away unless it's properly dealt with. We've seen the Vancouver Pride Society already come out and say that they're going to revoke parade status to the BC Liberal Party if this is not taken care of, which means MLA Lori Thronis is kicked out of caucus. 
I think Wilkinson has to nip this in the bud, and he's got to do it soon. And it might mean swallowing his pride because it looks like he's bowing down to NDP pressure. But that win for the NDP is going to be very short-lived, whereas this issue has the potential to persist for a long time if it's not immediately and properly dealt with. And this issue is not living in a vacuum, right? This Thronus issue is one of a number. I mean, we've seen some uh, liberal MLAs walking in pro-choice rallies. And the and the sort of cover on that was, again, that big tent. Because these people who, who are, are putting forward um, these views, I guess we can, religious views or personal and religious views, conversion therapy and, and the pro-choice argument, uh, bringing that into government, not having sort of that church and state um, separation, at least, or even the idea or the the optics of separation of it, it, it just feels so overt. And to say it's a big tent issue can turn off a, a large number of, of otherwise uh, BC liberal uh, constituents. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting because as we said, Andrew Wilkinson drew the line, uh, the line in the sand. Tracy Reedy's Todd Stone, they apologized. But a lot of the caucus that was featured in some of that advertising, we still don't know how they feel about it. They haven't come out and apologized. They haven't made any comments about it. Uh, it, From my understanding, Simon Gibson, MLA Gibson, has a uh, a monthly column in the light. And I'm not sure if that still stands or what the status of that is. Like, no one has come out and been very clear. And I think there has to be, everyone needs to get on the same page on this within the caucus. I think it's really important for uh, for them to be very clear. And I think not only does Mr. Wilkinson have to deal with this issue with um, MLA Thronus, but he's got to talk privately to people like Michael Lee and Sam Sullivan and Mary Polak and others that have this history of espousing, you know, socially conservative, and that's being very generous in in Mm -hmm. categorizing that, but socially conservative viewpoints. Jody Vance in for Mike this week, and uh, continuing my chat with Mo Amir, we're talking politics, but we're also talking some just general cancel culture uh, that that is coming into the fore. I mean, it's such a noisy, busy news cycle. Uh, it's hard to to keep track of everything that is happening. But certainly in our in our prior segment, uh, Mo Amir is with us, of course, host of Van Keller podcast. If you haven't already started listening to Van Keller, you should immediately. You've got some listening to do this weekend. It's the perfect thing while you're uh, working away in the garden with your earbuds in. That's how I'm picturing <laughs> Vancouverites uh, th- this weekend when it finally feels like summer. Mo, when it comes to uh, what we were speaking to prior to the break with regard to Lori Thronus and what, uh, in your opinion, Andrew Wilkinson must do in throwing Thronus uh, out because of his uh, his alignment with some personal and religious views that just they just don't fit with 2020 society on so many levels, conversion therapy, but also playing devil's advocate along the lines of, of canceling Thronus. Uh, is that what, what we've come to here as a society that it's, it, it, I mean, at, at, at what point can you even be aligned even marginally with somebody who uh, holds such beliefs as a politician? Are, are we in that zone now? Yeah, I think that's a good question, and this is uh, a conversation I actually had with Jazz Johal recently on my podcast, and you know, he himself expressed how now more than ever, whether it's, you know, politicians are getting photographed with people more than ever, they're attending events, and 
the public has an archival history of people and different fin- uh, different organizations at their fingertips. So politicians really do have to be careful about who they're seeing associating with, what type of events they attend. But I think the public still has a, a general willingness to forgive certain oversights. Um, Obviously, having certain beliefs and opinions, that is much different than having your photo taken with someone. Mm-hmm. But what we have to remember, specifically in this case, and when it comes to political parties, is that parties vet their candidates pretty thoroughly when it comes to things like their values and including things like LGBTQ, LGBTQ issues. And those things are vetted based on what the party truly believes. So they're already setting parameters of where your beliefs and your values lie in. And you know, it, this, it's not just political parties that do this. To get into UBC med school, they actually ask you uh, questions about your feelings on homosexuality and on same-sex marriage as part of the interview process. And I presume that they do that because they want their students to come out as medical doctors with a certain set of principles and values. So when it comes to private groups, even when it comes to media personalities, I mean, whether you're global or any other big media personality, you want your people to represent a certain type of uh, value set. And this has always happened. And we're just now being a lot more accountable to that. Right, the ethics that come with it. Your your words matter, even mm-hmm. when they might just be a tweet, as we're seeing more and more. Absolutely, yeah. And, and like I said, I really do think that people do have a capacity to forgive when the intent uh, is not there to harm anyone, when it mm-hmm. is someone speaking out of ignorance. We're seeing this with John Horgan. You know, he made a comment about addictions uh, just yesterday. Yes. And there is a greater conversation. He is getting uh, a lot of criticism for it. But I don't think people are willing to, compl- I don't think most people are completely to uh, write him off completely on his, on how serious he takes addictions and mental health issues in this province. Right. To be clear, for those who may have just tuned in, uh, it was reflected in our, our news to 1030. Uh, Premier John Horgan yesterday, when the uh, devastating record high uh, opioid fatalities uh, last month were released, uh, a new record um, of life lost. It, it was sort of he was referencing off the cuff about how COVID-19 is is a virus where uh, addiction is and drug use is basically a choice. And today he has absolutely apologized for that. Uh, Janet Brown had that story uh, in the news at 1030. And I think you're right in that people, people, pr- people appreciate a leader who can own it, Mm-hmm. apologize for it, learn from it, and grow from it. And we did say off the top of the last segment when uh, uh, the official opposition leader, Andrew Wilkinson, the leader of the the BC Liberals, um, referenced immediately the ad placed in that uh, uh, religious magazine, The Light. Uh, he said, absolutely, this will not happen. Here is the line. People in this party will not have uh, these beliefs. That is That is not what we are aligned with. So this this next sort of phase, this this new uh, Laurie Thronis piece uh, put, puts Andrew Wilkinson in the difficult position of you either, you know, walk the walk and follow through on that or that you're going to wear it. Whereas in this instance with Premier John Horgan that we just laid out, he has absolutely come back and said, I, I misspoke. That is not at all what I meant. I was I was, you know, trying to reference and he has he's made his position very clear and and has owned it as an individual. I think that's where cancel culture uh, comes into play. If you try and avoid it and you try and spin it, 
it, it, it, it, it falls flat. Absolutely. And the flip side of coming out and owning something and saying, listen, I made a mistake or I'm learning is that now the public will hold you accountable. Just like with the black squares on Instagram. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of people said, oh, it's an empty gesture, it's this, it's that, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Well, actually it means a lot. If you're a business and you put up the black square on Instagram, if you're an organization, even if you're an individual, you are you are standing up and you are now making yourself accountable to that issue. And and that's where I think I don't actually believe in the term cancel culture, especially here in in Canada. I don't mm, think we have mm-hmm. a cancel culture. I think we have a culture of consequences. I think we have a culture of accountability, which ultimately is a good thing. I mean, people point to Don Cherry. Don Cherry's old. He can retire. He is. He's fine. <laughs> uh, people point to Stockwell Day. He just got another yeah. board uh, uh, appointment. appointment recently. Yeah. You know, uh, people people keep complaining about cancel culture, but all it is is. People holding organizations, whether that's media organizations or political parties or just general groups, people holding them accountable for what they say they stand for. And I'd like to go back to Don Cherry because I think that is an absolute brilliant example. Don mm-hmm. Cherry wasn't cancelled. He was fired because he refused <laughs> to apologize. Yeah, Unlike exactly. His he had partner, the exactly. Ron McLean immediately, Mia culpa. Big mistake. I should have stopped that train going down the tracks. It's not like we haven't heard Don Cherry say things. I've done a commercial with Don Cherry years ago. He is exactly the guy that you think he is. And and take that for whatever you think he is. But mm-hmm. he is he is absolutely, he was convinced that he did not have to apologize, that he had nothing to apologize for. And that's where things got out of hand because the media company that paid him a huge sum of money said, we're going to need you to apologize there, Don. And he said, no, I won't. Yeah. And that, that's not cancel culture. That's you're fired. And, and that's a special type of uh, hubris, I think. Yeah. Because, again, we're all imperfect. Sometimes when, when talking about sensitive issues, we can express ourselves incorrectly or in a way that we didn't realize might be offensive. But mm-hmm. when told that, hey, you know what, when you think about it this way, this is how this is offensive. And if you're going to double down and say, well, I didn't mean it that way. Well, people are telling you how they took it. You know? yeah. so, it. so having Own a little it. bit of humility in, in these sensitive conversations is really important. I think people are willing to forgive you. But as you said, if you double down and you say, no, I'm right, and there's nothing wrong with what I said, mm. there are going to be consequences for that. Yeah, there'll be a landslide. What's coming up next on Van Color? What, what can we look forward to? Well, this week, I really want to promote the episode with Global's Nadia Stewart. Uh, She's also the executive director for the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. Uh, We have a very personal conversation where she talks about her work at the CABJ, going to different media outlets and trying to express uh, more racial diversity, more racial equity to them, while also holding this position at Global. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a very uh, personal, uh, very introspective conversation, and I really do hope that people check it out. This is Van Keller on all the podcast platforms. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith this week. Uh, next up here is a good friend of the program. Michelle Cambolis is a family and child therapist who has joined us numerous times to talk about stressed out families, stressed out kids, stressed out teens. I don't know if ever before, Michelle, you and I have connected when the stress level was as high as a global pandemic. It just seems next level. It's mind-blowing. And, um, you know, we, we talk about um, mental health and, and um, you know, stress that, that teens are under on a fairly ongoing basis. And pre-pandemic, 
um, children and youth were struggling with um, oftentimes debilitating and rising levels of anxiety. And now, of course, um, um, their, their stress is really off the charts. And so when that, an entire family is, is stressed out and maybe finding it difficult to make ends meet or have a new dynamic where everybody's working from home, it can really put pressure on all levels of the family. And oftentimes that does trickle down uh, to the kids in the household who don't really necessarily know how to let it out. Can you give some advice to, to parents who might be seeing that in their kids and, and, and give them some tools? Yeah, so, I mean, it's really hard to know what the long-term impact is for, for children um, with the lack of socialization and not going to school and then and add to that the pressure that parents are under. So it's creating a lot of stress um, in, in parenting and, and for kids themselves. And so, I mean, I think so important to um, really focus on the basics, getting outside, increasing mm-hmm. activity levels, making sure that you have some kind of routine um, and also being really easy on yourself, be recognizing that this is a very difficult time. And so family life is not going to be ideal. And, um, and I, I see a lot of parents being extremely hard on themselves during this yeah. time. So um, I think Maybe it's, go it's easy important to go easy, go easy. Yeah. yeah. What about, Michelle, what about with the, and this one's a toughie, because I remember what it's like to be a teenager. I might be old, but I'm not that old. I remember that I would get directives. I would get, you know, guidance and rules from my parents and overall pretty good kid, but I was still a teenager. I'm like, yeah, 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 mom, whatever. And then I'd go do what I wanted to do. Uh, In a pandemic, that is really difficult. And we often see COVID cops getting all up in arms over the gatherings of teens or the, you know, the partiers on the patio or what have you, people not physical distancing and such. How can we talk to our teens when they do believe they're invincible well we we need to keep the conversation going um first of all we need to model um Mm -hmm. healthy behaviors ourselves because it's not just teens that are are now um really loosening personal you know restrictions and 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 boundaries Um, um parents too are um having larger larger um gatherings and and so first of all we need to we need to model and then Keep the conversation open. Help them find alternatives because, of course, they want to have fun. Um, you know, they've been restricted for so long. We all have been. And so we want to be able to help them to find alternatives where they're also keeping themselves in the community safe. I mean, keep in mind, um, the brain doesn't fully develop develop until the age of 25. So the, the logical thinking component and understand understanding of cause and effect is not really, you know, fully online yet. So we need to just continue to direct their attention to um, impact, impact, impact. Mm-hmm. MichelleCambolis.com is where you can find out more about Michelle's practice. I imagine as a family and child therapist, you're extraordinarily busy these days and, and not necessarily meaning that's a good thing because the, the stress level is so high, as we've said, but we've also had the pendulum when it swings in one direction where there are people like, I'm done with the shackles of COVID-19. There are those that swing in the other direction and some kids and some parents are incredibly stressed out and overly uh, so, you know, r- bubble wrapped and, and, you know, d- you're washing your hands or hand sanitizer to the point your, your, your hands are cracked and bleeding and you're afraid to leave your house or, or afraid to do the things that phase three does allow you to do. Uh, there's also that level of fear. 
in play? A lot of anxious families, a lot of anxious families. And we're all just trying to figure out what that balance might be. And so, you know, when we're, when we're under this level of stress and our brain is operating um, in a way where we're constantly trying to process new information and new directives, it's very, very difficult. And, um, you know, uncertainty breeds anxiety. So it's an important mm-hmm. time to keep a close eye on those mental health symptoms, reach out early and um, plan for the future, but live in the present. If you see your child or your teen have an anxiety attack for the very first time, what's the best thing that you can do? This is such a great question. I can't tell you how many people have been reaching out to me with panic attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so important just to build in um, a plan. So uh, square breathing is the, the quickest way to circumvent uh, a panic a- attack. So breathe in for four, hold for four, exhale for four hold for four. Um, You're getting too much oxygen into the system and that's what's um, triggering the panic attack. Um, Okay, I want you to to say that again. You breathe in for four? Breathe in for four. hold your breath for four? You got it. Breathe out for four and hold for four. Interesting because the breathe out for four piece is something that will strike you immediately that you weren't doing when you were panicking. It's the exhale and just pause. It's the old breathe in and out of a, of a paper bag from the, the, you know, the cartoons of years gone by. It's just being aware of your breathing, right? You've got it. And so when you're having a panic attack, you feel like that you're not getting enough breath. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you've ever had one, but you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's horrifying. You feel like you're dying. You feel like you're not getting enough breath, but in fact, you're getting too much oxygen. So you got to slow that down. So there's a very usable piece. If you or somebody you love or somebody that you're with is is experiencing that panic attack, immediately try to help, which is something we can do from physical distancing because my immediate reaction is to hug. So, you know, from a physical distance, say, yeah. just, just breathe in for four. Now hold it for four. Now breathe out for four. Now pause yes. for four and do it again. And reminding them you're safe. You're this safe. is just panic. Um, you're, you're going to be okay. Um, it, because, you know, when you're in the moment of a panic attack, you really do feel like you're, you're in the most extreme level of danger. So just using those reassuring words and then walking them through those steps is, right. um, is a great way to go. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for your advice. I'm glad you had some time here to squeeze us in. Oh, always happy to join you, Jody. Thanks so much. 911.